Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. The Bureau of Prisons compiled new data for members of Congress, and the data shows officials approved fewer applications during the pandemic than the year before, despite the deadly COVID-19 pandemic. The BOP is America's largest jailer, with over 163,000 people in custody, and since the first reported case last spring, more than 49,000 federal prisoners have fallen ill and 256 have died. 35 of those who died were waiting for a decision on their release requests. Tens of thousands of federal prisoners applied for compassionate release after the virus began sweeping through lockups. But a new director who took over in early 2020 approved fewer of those applications during the pandemic than they did the year before. While the BOP director gave them the green light to 55 such requests in 2019, Officials approved only 36 requests in the 13 months since the pandemic took hold in March 2020. The lower approvals came despite the number of people seeking compassionate release surged from 1,735 in 2019 to nearly 31,000 after the virus hit. Federal judges released thousands of people in the face of BOP inaction, and BOP continues to face intense scrutiny in several lawsuits over its handling of COVID-19. The Bureau has offered little insight into its reasons for denying compassionate release. As reported by The Guardian, quote, according to the information BOP sent to Congress, wardens denied nearly 23,000 requests because the person does not meet criteria. Roughly 3,200 people were denied because their cases were not extraordinary and compelling, while a little over 1,200 were rejected for not providing enough information or documentation. Four people met the criteria, but were denied due to correctional concerns. The BOP's central office rejected or did not respond to just over 90% of the 374 prisoners that wardens did recommend for compassionate release during the pandemic, without saying why. The BOP's general counsel said to The Guardian, quote, The BOP does not track the specific reasons for approval or denial of a compassionate release request at the central office level, as there can be several reasons for a particular decision, end quote. Allison Guernsey, a clinical associate professor at the University of Iowa College of Law, who was previously interviewed on KiteLine, reviewed the cases of all prisoners who have died of the virus, including those who were seeking compassionate release. She said, quote, In court, prosecutors were fighting release and saying that this person doesn't have a condition that makes them vulnerable, and then they would die, and the BOP would issue a press release saying that the person had underlying conditions. This two-faced position of the Department of Justice, which includes the BOP, is really quite shocking, end quote. Unfortunately, often, judges agreed with the prosecutor's reasoning. In 35 cases, the judges never made a decision. The prisoners died first. This week, we continue talking to David Campbell, former anti-fascist political prisoner who recently did a year on Rikers Island. In our last conversation with David, he discussed the circumstances of how he ended up in the Rikers facility, the short of it being that he was sentenced to his time after a fight with some Trump supporters in New York City. 
In our segment today, he spells out some of the ways that doing a long stint in jail is different than one in prison, and also about what it was like to organize in prison during COVID-19. Here he is. So I went to court for sentencing. It was my sentencing date. Man, I had like 30 or 40 friends. You know, my brother was there, comrades, you know, lots of people came out to support, just packed the courtroom. That was awesome. Um, the guy who was injured spoke and was like, you know, this was like a group attack and Antifa is like a very dangerous organization. Um, <laughs> it's like this weird, it was kind of like a weird Trumpy guy. And the judge asked me some questions to kind of confirm that you know, these charges were like legally appropriate, I guess. Um, the charges that I was pleading to, you know, like um, you were involved in this altercation with you know, two or more other people, you know, you kicked this man and you were wearing a shoe when you kicked him. Like that's what they, yeah, I mean, they actually asked me that because they charged me with wearing a shoe while kicking a person. We went through that. I had like a minute to speak. Then they, uh, they asked me to stand up and they cuffed me and uh, brought me into like, you know, door number three. Like there's like, there's like this like door, where like when it opens, you see like sunlight and a nice big like mahogany desk, right? And there's like a door like when it opens, you see just like papers and stuff and cubicles. And there's a door like when it opens, there's like people screaming and chains and it's like cold and dark. And yeah, it's a, they took me to door number three. I was like, no, not, not door number three. So they, and they took me um, and did like a, a really half-assed search. Like they patted me down. And it's like I could have had so much like hidden, <laughs> like, you know, uh, I'm not even talking about uh, boofing, you know, hiding stuff in your rectum. Like that's, you know. Not something I really would have considered, but even even just like on my person, not even in my person. Like I could easily. It was just a half-assed search, and and then um, actually didn't spend that long in kind of the cells beneath the Manhattan courthouse. Um, but I was transferred around through a series of cells in Manhattan, and then they put me in shackles and put me on a bus, and um, we drove over to Rikers. You know, and it was weird to see the city. You know, like Chinatown and uh, you know the Manhattan Bridge and like the BQE and Manhattan Skyline. You know. Um, through this grate, you know, on a, on a correction bus. That was weird. And then when I got to Rikers, they brought me to EMTC. So Rikers, for people who don't know, is not one building, right? It's like, a, it's an island with a bunch of different buildings on it. It's a, it's a complex of jail facilities, right? And there's a whole lot of stuff. Like most of the buildings on Rikers are for warehousing people because they're jail buildings. But there's also like, you know, medical facilities, power plant. There's like, you know, a landfill. There's all kinds of right most or at least like a huge portion of the jail facilities are abandoned the whole island's a show but so there are different buildings for different things emtc also known as the sixth building uh was where they housed all sentenced inmates and only sentenced inmates so most people on records are detained facing charges they're not convicted yet you know and that could be anything right that's that's the vast majority it's like i don't know 85 90 percent of people on rikers right Oh God, it might be more than that. It's like the overwhelming majority. We'll say that. I don't have the numbers, right? Are, are detained. And then a very small number, uh, I think about a thousand when I started my bid in October, 2019, are sentenced to what they call city time, right? So it's, yeah, you've been convicted of a crime and sentenced to serve time. The time is not so much that you necessarily go to prison. Doing my time here at Rikers was actually part of the negotiations because I had a high profile case where I was accused of beating up a Trump supporter and it could be more of a problem for me upstate, right? So like that was something that we talked about. So there, there are ways you can work out, oh, I want to do my time here at Rikers. But basically, if you're doing time on Rikers, if you're, if you're serving time on Rikers, convicted of a crime, then you're not doing more than 16 months. That's the maximum. Now, occasionally you have guys who have another case, right? 
So, oh, you know, I've been sentenced to eight months. I'm serving eight months. But I also have an open, like, attempted murder case or something. It's like, oh, so that guy is kind of in a different mindset, maybe, you know, than most of the other guys who are going to see the street again soon if they just, like, behave and stay chill, right? Like, that's so, so there's a big incentive to just kind of stay, you know, keep it together. So they brought me to this building, EMTC, um, the sixth building. And um, same sort of thing. I was processed through a number of pens. Finally, about midnight, um, I got up uh, to the dorm and I just picked a, a bunk and, like, passed out on it, you know. Yeah, I mean, the whole process probably took like nine hours i i went to court at 2 30 i was probably in cuffs by like 3 30 and then i was probably in bed on rikers by midnight it's kind of hard to tell time when you're locked up <laughs> like sometimes you know it's like or even just in court it's like i didn't bring my phone or my wallet with me because or my uh, my watch with me or my wallet um you know it's like it's kind of hard to tell so that that was kind of what the um the intake process is like you know they take your clothes and stuff they put them in like a little it's it's like a, a bag, but it's got like a sort of cube structure to it, and it's designed to fit into like a little cubby hole, right? They have this, these storage rooms with like rows and rows of shelves, where like every inmate's property goes into one of these, right? So, and then you change you change out of your street clothes into your greens, right? So, sentenced inmates wear forest green on records. Detained inmates wear tan. So often people refer to other inmates by their color. I mean, you you wouldn't just say like, hey, tan, right? It's like, oh, he's one of the tans, right? He's in tans, right? Oh, the tans in the housing unit across the hall are going crazy, right? You'd say things like that. He's in greens, right? So, yeah, so if you're in greens, you're serving 16 months or less. And it used to be that you were in EMTC. A couple of months into my sentence, they shut down. They started shutting down EMTC as part of the plan to close records by 2026. That was... Um, de Blasio's idea. And so when they did this, what they started doing was just like showing up. A CO would just show up in the dorm. I was in dorms the whole time. I was never in a, in a cell. I would have killed for a cell for the longest time. And then summer rolled around and I found out that like the dorms had AC and the cells did not. And I was so grateful to be in a dorm. And then by the time, you know, the end of my bid, it was like, well, I'm, you know, I got two months left. I'm not going to go to a cell, you know, it's like not, not now, but for the first like leg of my sentence, I was like, I will fight anyone for a chance at a cell like that would be amazing you know not that that's like an actual option there's no like there's no lottery by combat for cells in the nyc doc but uh but yeah this the emtc and brooklyn house which is like booking is a jail facility in brooklyn were the first two facilities to be closed and all their inmates kind of like randomly told to pack up in, in little groups and kind of transfer it out to other buildings that had space in them as part of this plan to close rikers so about two months into my bid they started just showing up and they'd be like, okay, uh, Campbell, Harrington, uh, Hernandez. All right, like, pack up. Pack your shit. You got 10 minutes, right? All your shit, put it in a trash bag. You get two trash bags if you're lucky. So I, I got transferred to the four building, also known as RNDC. And EMTC was actually closed for like a week or two. And then Corona hit and they started sending people back over there to use it as like an overflow quarantine building. So I'm not clear, to kind of put a button on the EMTC thing, I'm not clear on what EMTC status is right now. I don't know if it's still open, but it was closed and then reopened for quarantine. Then they got Corona kind of under control at Rikers and started bringing people out, you know, um, or moving, you know, people out of EMTC once they were no longer had symptoms or whatever. Yeah, so I spent the first part of my, my sentence in EMTC, which was chill because it was all... I mean, chill. I mean, it's my first time. It wasn't like a library, you know, like, but compared to like what people often think of in Rikers, like EMTC is known to be like the chillest building on the island by far. 
I mean, you can probably imagine why, because I was doing 16 months or less, right? And or less can be like 10 days. You know what I mean? I met guys with like a third DUI, sentenced to 15 days, like, you know, okay, well, you, uh, you do two thirds of your sentence if you do it on records. So I was sentenced to 18 months, I did 12. It's, it's a really good ratio of yeah. like good time, right? So, I mean, like if you do your time upstate, especially on a violent conviction, I think it's like one seventh. So if I'd, even if I'd served the same, uh, but been sentenced to the same amount of time and served it upstate, I would have done like, you know, 16 months instead of 18. Well, because I did it on Rikers, I did 12, right, instead of 18. Um, so that's just the protocol. And it's been that way for a long time. But yeah, so you only do two thirds of your time, you know, which is another selling point. It's like, look, you know, you do your time here, you'll do less of it, right? You're closer to friends and family. But as you probably know, as a lot of people listening probably know, like one of the things about jail is that compared to prison, there's like nothing in terms of comfort, programs, activities, and it's really on you to pass the time. It yeah, it's just like this. Just like guys, there's one guy in there who's like, I did 11 years upstate, and this six months is going slower than those 11 years. You know, it's like there's no movement. There's no. I mean, guys who've done time upstate, you know, talk about like, oh, you know, you can get your friends and family to send you like 35 pounds of groceries, like regular street groceries, a month. I think it's a month. It's a lot. That's a lot. 35 pounds of food. Like I can just go to the supermarket and buy my friend in prison. And send it to him 35 pounds you can get uh like oh god two cartons of cigarettes sent in like a week or something ridiculous like an absurd amount of cigarettes you can have a keyboard a typewriter a guitar you can go to the yard four times a day for two hours each time you can watch movies three times a day um you can you know there's all kinds of certification courses training programs what and then like you know we had like like there were some things but the impression I got, again, never having been to prison, only having been to jail, the impression I got is that it's like just the time passes way more slowly in jail because there's just not as much to, to occupy the, the prisoners. Like lack of things to do, it builds frustration. I mean, it's like, there, sure, there's been pressure from prison reformers or whatever, right, to install these programs in prisons, right? Again, not jails, but prisons, right? But also like, you know, when the people who control these things make these decisions to institute these programs, it's not purely because like enough prison reform advocates have like told them that this is the nice thing to do. It's because like, oh yeah, also it keeps the inmates occupied, right? Like it's, it's, it's a thing, you know, it's, it's somewhere for you to put your, your time and energy. So I don't know. I wondered how many stupid like fights erupted over that sort of thing. I think 99% of the fights I saw were entirely avoidable and they were over really petty and they were probably just largely driven by misplaced anger you know i think sometimes it was like maybe more important to a guy personally that he fight to save face and not look like a pushover like that i mean that's kind of dumb but it's like something you can kind of understand but a lot of times it was just guy taking it out on somebody you know it's just like really dumb organizing was really fascinating too and really rewarding because like you see all these petty fights and like these divisions and like it's very clear you know to a lot of people to me at least that it was like partly driven by like just being in a place you don't want to be having nothing to do like you know having to pass the time you know living in close proximity with people that like you don't like and don't know and like you know generally speaking right because you can make friends in there right but it's like in general i'd rather not be with all you fine people <laughs> like so like it was really cool once we started organizing against the COVID conditions to see um 
to see that unity just happened. Yeah, that was really amazing. But so, um, so when COVID first started, we were kind of watching it on the news, you know, oh, it was an epidemic and it was a global pandemic. And I was in New York and like, you know, people were standing in lines, you know, three blocks long to get into Costco. There was no toilet paper. Um, people leaving the city. Yeah. I mean, this is all stuff that I just heard about. Like, I don't have any firsthand experience of this. I, I had toilet paper. I, you know, <laughs> I lived in an institution that had a warehouse full of toilet paper. And I was, yeah, honestly, it was the thing that went through my, it's like, listen, the food I'm eating is but they got pallets of this stuff. You know what I mean? They're not going to run out of this before I'm out of here. You know what I mean? Like, so yeah, I was in an institutional setting. I did not have to worry about toilet paper. There's no hand sanitizer. And then masks, they wouldn't give us. Not only did they not have, uh, masks we'll talk about in a minute because it's a whole thing. But so we were kind of watching COVID develop on the outside. And I, I think like in the same week that it started to get really bad in New York, there were people starting to get sick in our building. And you would see like a CEO wearing a mask and an inmate wearing a mask, uh, walking down the hall with like a rolling plastic cart full of that inmate's stuff, right? That means that he's moving. He's moving out, right? You don't see people in the halls with their stuff unless like he's being transferred, right? And it's like, oh, you know, the guy's like kind of red faced, he's coughing. And it's like, and this is before everyone was wearing masks, right? Like, no, so someone's wearing a mask, it looked kind of weird. Um, and if someone's transferring out and wearing a mask, it's like, you know, what's going on? So you started to see that more and more. I'm trying to remember the exact timeline. I remember we had, we went to an inmate council. So I, I wrote about this whole process on hard crackers. It's called Stick Up on Rikers Island. If you just Google stick up on Rikers Island, hard crackers, it should come up. But I wrote a pretty detailed piece about all the stuff I'm talking about and, and I'm about to talk about in terms of when COVID first got into Rikers and started really running wild and what we did to organize. So I, I can't remember exactly off the top of my head what happened first, but there, there were people in our dorm that started to get sick and they had, you know, symptoms. I mean, it could have been a cold, could have been the flu, but also it could have been Corona. And like, we didn't have masks. Like our beds are two and a half feet apart. And all this was happening while they were moving more people into the dorm because the plan to close Rikers that I talked about earlier, they would just show up and say, okay, so-and-so, so-and-so, and so-and-so pack up, right? And, you know, this group of like five to 20 guys would just be transferred somewhere else. Um, that was still going on while Corona was starting and they weren't stopping it, you know, just the dumbest thing. So like I lived in a dorm with about 20 guys, it was a 48 bed dorm, a 50 bed dorm, more or less. And for a couple of months, there had been about 20 guys in there with some natural variation. And then like overnight, they moved in 20 more. A week later, they moved in eight more. So we were maxed out. And this is like the week that people are getting sick and like going to the clinic and like being quarantined and like people running out of toilet paper on the outside. It's like, dude, do not make this a more crowded living situation. That sounds terrible. That's what they did because they are that dumb. It's also not people being mean or people being dumb, but just people doing their jobs and like not being used to being held accountable. They just don't care, right? Why would they care? So they're moving more people in on top of us the same week that public health experts were saying, you know, no gatherings of more than 50 people, then 20 people, then 10 people, you know, um, stay six feet away. And, and you know, they, they don't have masks. They won't give us masks if they have them. They're putting flyers up everywhere that say stay six feet apart. Wash your hands, cover your cough. It's like, dude, that's ridiculous. I mean, that is, yeah, it's crazy. So, um, I mean, it's funny. Like, it's, it is funny, but it's like, you know, gallows humor funny. And we had a couple of inmate councils where, like, they have this thing called inmate council. It's nonsense, but they, they have some high ranking DOC officials go and then they send delegates each dorm, each housing unit, dorm, cell block, whatever it may be, nominates a delegate to go to the inmate council. And then you just kind of talk about whatever problems you have. And it's like, nothing happens. It's not, it's just to say you have some like 
thing in place for there to be communication between the leadership and the, the inmates. I went to a few inmate councils like that week and they were just like, yeah, drink green tea, like eat more fruits. But then of course, like they would confiscate your fruit if they saw it in the dorm because you were supposed to eat it in the dining hall. But then you didn't have enough time in the dining like they gave you like five minutes. You didn't have the time to like eat your whole tray and then peel an orange and eat it. But so like, you know, it was just the whole, yeah, all this stuff. It was just like, it was impossible to even do the stuff they were talking about, like <laughs> eat more fruit, you know? And we were asking like, are you testing COs before they come to work? No, we're not going to do that. Well, are you taking COs temperatures before they come to work? No. I mean, and, and you're talking Rikers Island is one bridge. It's like actually a, a choke point. Like there's, you could easily just set up a person at the foot of the bridge. Just like, okay, you're coming onto the island. Just going to take your temperature. Like that's easy, you know? But yeah, they just refused to do that. You know, there was one older guy, this English guy. And the guy was nuts. He was like, I've got health problems and I don't want to be, you know, he's like 65. He was talking about his like lung and like kidney and heart problems. And he was like really like yelling at them. And they just like, ah, crazy old, you know, they, they were really not doing. And so what we ended up doing was creating a cleaning schedule in my dorm, like kind of on our own. That was cool. We did that non-hierarchically. So I'm an anarchist, right? So I like to organize by consensus without leaders, if possible. Sometimes you got to make concessions like, you know, to get it done, but that's, you know, I prefer to do it. So we created this cleaning schedule so that we could at least like have a shot at not just getting, right? Like we clean all surfaces regularly and try to stay away from each other. Um, guys would wear like extra t-shirts or like a scrap of a t-shirt or like a scrap of a bedsheet around their faces as kind of a makeshift mask. There were a couple guys that had actual respirator, like um, disposable ones, the paper ones. Like they could get those um, from, there was one of the job details, I think the sanitation crew, some of those guys had access. So occasionally you would see guys that had managed through like sort of unofficial channels to get um, like a paper mask, like an actual respirator mask. But um, yeah, we, we created this cleaning schedule. We were just kind of making do. And um, people started talking about sticking it up, which is what they call it when you just don't go along with whatever you're supposed to do. So sticking it up is kind of like a very broad term. Sticking it up, I think would encompass anything from like splashing. Splashing would be like throwing bodily fluids like feces or um, urine on a CO. I, I, that's kind of a specific thing, it's called splashing, right? Um, but I think it would fall under the umbrella of sticking it up or like pick a herb. <laughs> Sorry, this is all like new to me. Yeah, I'm like a jail tourist. Like, you know, it's like, it's a lot of information. Like pick a herb. Have you heard of this? Or is it like a local Rikers thing? Pick a herb is like, let's say I'm in a holding cell, like in a pen and I'm, you know, pens, you're just held there while you're waiting to be transferred somewhere else. And like, I've been there all day, you know, I want to get back to my housing unit or I just want to know what's going on. No one's paying attention to me. You know, I've been yelling and screaming and banging on the bars. And they're just ignoring me. And I'm like, all right, it. CO, get me out of this pen or I'm going to pick a herb. Like I'm going to start, you know. And so if they don't, if that doesn't work. Pick, picking a herb is like you pick a guy who looks like his name would be Herb. Like a guy who looks like he won't fight back and just start beating the out of him. And like, yes, yeah, so you're like holding his health hostage for Because like it creates paperwork and headaches for them. You know, it's like they can't just let you beat the out of this guy, right? Like they'll get in trouble somewhat, you know. I, but so like that, picking a herb, splashing, I think those would be considered sticking it up. So it's using that general way. But I think it's also used to mean like, I've, I heard about a sit-in, an anti-racist sit-in. Like this dude told me in the five building, a different building that I, I never spent any time in, but which is actually the largest building on Rikers. You hear a lot of stories about the five building. This guy told me that there was a CO on the floor, like the regular CO, and she was always making really racially charged comments. And um, he said the Latin Kings who were running the housing unit organized everybody 
They took all their belongings out. They packed them up. They put them on the tier and they sat down. And they said, we're not moving until we get, you know, captains, deps, that's deputy wardens, meaning pretty high-ranking DOC officials, um, in here to talk to us. And, uh, and apparently their demands were met. Like they got people to come speak with them. And that CO was transferred. They never saw her again. Um, so like that would be a stick up, right? It's a sit in, right? But they would refer to it as a stick up. What we did was we, we did a, a strike and it was a very short lived strike. It lasted like less than 24 hours, but what we did was get it outside, right? So like people stick it up on Rikers all the time for all sorts of things. And it usually doesn't get to the news. Things that may or may not be worth like, you know, like they might be really like ignoble, like, you know, uh, not having enough like games for your PS4 or something, which like matters in jail. You know, it's not like always this like for the dignity of man sort of like, you know, it's not, you know, it could be something really dumb. So, but we, yeah, we stuck it up. What we did was uh, we refused to go to work or to leave the dorm for meals and meals. So work is a big one because the inmates, especially sentenced inmates, sentenced inmates are required to work, perform all the menial tasks that keep the island running. So that's sanitation, that's working in the kitchen, that's distributing the food in the mess hall, that's like, you know, all kinds of stuff, you know, salting the roads and like all, all kinds of stuff, right? Um, working in commissary. So um, we refused to go to work. The only people in my dorm who went to work were the three guys who worked at West facility, which was, it's like, it's a medical facility. And they, they make really, I mean, they made $300 a week, which is good money by jail standards. And they, like they're, they're the CEO who was their supervisor, like their boss, showed up while we were like refusing to leave and was like, if you don't come out now, I'm going to fire you. Like they, they thought they could just take a day off and get away with it. But like, they just weren't ready to do that. So it's fine. No disrespect. Um, but so we refused to go to work and we refused to go to meals and meals is big because from a coverage standpoint, which is really what they're concerned about. They want to be able to say on paper that they provided you with the opportunity to eat a meal, right? Like it's, it's it looks bad for them, even if it's just one meal. So we refuse to leave the dorm for meals. And that this was my dorm and the dorm across the hall. So each dorm was about 45 people. So about 90 people total in the Ford building and RNDC uh, decided to, to do this little strike. And what happened was, um, what actually caused the strike to happen on this particular day was they cut the phones off in the morning. Like they just cut the phones off for no reason. Didn't give us, you know, I don't know what that was about, but it, it pissed people off. It pushed us, pushed us over the edge. When the phones came back on a few hours later, I was able to get a phone call to a friend of mine, anarchist, good friend, activist guy, and, you know, very quickly gave him a statement. And said, like, this is what we're doing. This is, a, these are our demands. And please just like blast that. You know what I mean? And, uh, and they did. Like they got that out all over social media. It went to like, you know, regular media. Uh, later that afternoon, it went to politicians. Like Bill de Blasio was asked about it live uh, at his press conference, like his coronavirus. But yeah. And dude, it was crazy. Everyone like... We just, people just went crazy. We're all, a lot of guys were in the day room watching the news and like, like, yeah, cause like they wanted to hear his answer to see if he was like, well, yes, we'll just really, you know, but he didn't say anything that mattered. And as soon as he was done talking, it was like, you know, it's like when the, you score that goal in like, you know, sports movie or whatever, you know, you're just like celebrating. It was pretty cool. Was so so cool. yeah, it was super cool. Um, so our demands were, um, we wanted, um, the demand, the recommendations issued by the board of correction. Like earlier that week, even just a few days. So the Board of Correction is an ind supposedly, right? Like an independent, like sort of oversight and recommendation body, right? Like that's what they do. They make recommendations. They have some sort of oversight. They don't really have any control, right? Um, but I think they tend to be pretty progressive. They're not the administrators of the, the DOC. They don't run Rikers. But they're, they're like 
directly involved, they're directly connected, and they make recommendations, right? And so they were saying that they needed to be releasing lots of people, right? And they, they gave a few criteria for like who should be released, and they issued this statement like a few days, I think, before the stick up. So we jumped on that, we're like, yeah, all the people that the Board of Correction recommended should be released, should be released immediately. Everyone that's gonna be here, we need PPE, we need cleaning supplies, you know, we want to be able to social distance, you know, pretty, I mean, pretty basic stuff, right? And, you know, considering how resistant they were to doing anything about it, it was like, you know, it was amazing. You can hear our previous episode with David on our website, kitelineradio.org. This has been KiteLine. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Please join us every Friday for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our community. Thank you for listening.